1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email live at com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, Steve. So we got a piece of email in, and it's a guy asking about a motherboard, and it turns out you own this exact motherboard.
0: Yeah, well, I guess that happens. Uh, You're bound to run into common pieces of hardware that we may have scattered between the two of us. I imagine we have quite a a large selection of common pieces.
1: Yeah, we'll have to go through, take inventory at some point. So it's the Asus B550, and uh, Andrew writes in and he says, Hi Noah and Steve, I have a 2 terabyte dual boot hard drive with Windows 10 and Ubuntu on it. The Windows install has a large assortment of games for the kids but the system is suffering due to lag of speed of the spinning rust. Since a 2 terabyte NVMe is cost prohibitive, I had the idea of making the drive part of a RAID 1 array to speed things up a little bit while keeping the cost close to free. Since I already have a 2 terabyte drive to prevent me from, to, from having to reinstall Windows all of the games and reinstate all of the game save files after hunting and backing them all up, I hope to migrate the existing install onto a RAID array um he specifies his motherboard again in asus b550 and says that it has native raid support however when he turns the options on the drives are no longer visible to uefi or g parted in gnome do you guys know of a possible solution to turn an otherwise raid configuration on without needing to start from scratch happy to purchase a separate raid card if it'll make life easier i also have other spare drives I'm not using as a boot drive to start software raid setup might be work better just looking to try to alleviate the disk io bottleneck of the spinning drive thanks love your show andrew steve your thoughts
0: so there's a lot to unpack here so let's start with okay we we think we have a performance issue because of the spinning rust what are we putting on there what kind of performance are we looking for is it like blu-ray stuff that you're just using as a scratch disk. For example, like I have, I literally have a disk, a two terabyte disk in my computer, that's called uh, Blu-rays and it's where I rip my Blu-rays to Cause I just need a large spot to dump them. Um, is this, you know, my operating systems there and it's really slow to boot. And you know, when you can end up having IO contention, when your operating system goes to do something and you try to launch a game, for example, and they're both on the same disk, even just simply having them on different disks, one for the game and one for the OS will help you. So that's just something to think about in terms of the contention. You can't convert a a disk from a traditional, um, from a traditional disk to like a SATA disk to a RAID array. That's just not how it works. So you can't just pick up a disk and turn the RAID on and expect it to work because what happens is, if you were to do something like this, your best option would be to have a RAID 1 disk that doesn't have a partner, so RAID 1 is mirror. What that means is information gets written to both drives at the same time. So you can create a RAID 1 with only a single disk and then add in its partner after the fact. Uh, this is the one of the only RAIDs where you can actually do something like that. But you can't just turn on RAID on a disk because It has to, the RAID controller has to know what information is where in order to determine how it's to handle this. So, if it's RAID 5, for example, or any of the RAIDs that have to have parity bits, it needs to know what information is already on the disk so it can write the parity bit to another, like to another section of the drive or a different hard drive. So, if you're going to do RAID, you're going to have to start all over. So, you'd have to either have new disks and You know do your install to that and then copy your data over or uh, you're going to have to essentially lose that data because you'd have to wipe the disk over again Um, in terms of using the motherboard raid uh, i would absolutely not do this it hardware raid on the motherboard is mostly like a fake type of raid to begin with so there's a lot of trouble with if if your motherboard dies for example there's a lot of trouble porting your disks from a motherboard that's dead to a new motherboard and having the RAID be read correctly. Your better bet is to go with like an LSI card or a, an actual RAID card because that will make your disks more portable in the event that you have like a motherboard go out. The last thing you want to do is have a RAID array that you can't access because the information's useless. Um, and finally, I'd say, if you're looking for, um, trying to alleviate disk IO, RAID might not be the best way. So the common way to get more speed out of spinning rust is to put them in a RAID zero. That's where both disks are working in tandem uh, in order to have the best performance. It kind of stripes all of the information across both disks. So both disks can be spinning at the same time. So what happens with traditional hard drives is there's a little head that moves back and forth, kind of like on a record and it's trying to find that information. And when you're hitting IO contention, that head is moving so quickly because information is scattered across the disk that it you know, it basically maxes out its mechanical uh, properties before it can get to the information. If you've got two disks in RAID 0, both heads can be seeking at the same time to pull out various bits of information and that speeds things up. However, the problem there is if one disk has a problem in RAID 0, you lose all of your information. So it should, only, it should be used very sparingly. RAID 1, like the, the listener has written in about, is used more for redundancy, like I, I wanna make sure that my operating system stays up, so I put it in RAID 1, that allows me to blow a disk and continue operating because they're exact copies of each other. That's not likely to alleviate this, this, uh, the concern around IO. So I would rather pick up a really cheap like $50 SSD and you'll have way better, a way better time. Like you you can go to Amazon or wherever, spend 50 bucks and get a 512 gig disc. And I guarantee you this will, it'll blow your mind compared to your rust. Uh, What are your thoughts, Noah?
1: I agree with everything that guy just said.
0: (laughs) So yeah, to sum up, don't use your motherboard raid. It's a terrible idea. Um, because it's really hard to port your discs. If you're set on doing raid, you're going to use an external raid disc. And I saw the, the ask, can you use DD or something else to, to try and port your information? The answer is no, because with the raid disc, it basically writes a little part of your, uh, it li- writes a little memory to the header of the of the hard drive to indicate that it's part of an array array. So if you dd something from a non-raid disk onto a raid disk, you're going to trance all over the little bit in front of the drive that tells it it's part of a raid array. So hopefully that clarifies the questions here.
1: All right. Our second question comes in from Michael. Michael writes in and says, good morning, Noah and Steve. I'm the IT guy at our church, and we're moving on to a self-hosted Nextcloud server on top of Ubuntu. The staff works both from church and at home. The problem is when the staff are working from the church, they can no longer access the server, but it's instead redirected to the Comcast router while using the domain. Doing some research, I came across a hairpin gnat, but no real answer on how to fix the issue. Tried running a local DNS server to no avail. Any ideas on what the staff can do to access the server? Love the show; gives me to something to think about during my workday. Thanks for all you do, Michael.
0: Sounds like port forwarding issue to me. What do you think?
1: So I think he's. I I think the DNS route is is a is a way you can solve that problem. So I with uh, with Microtech this was uh, this was a big thing. They would, if you, unless you explicitly wrote a hairpin NAT rule, the firewall wouldn't do it. So if you're sitting inside of the, inside of the firewall and tried to reach out, it would try to resolve its public IP and go, well, I don't know what to do with that. It's traffic coming from myself to myself. And if you explicitly wrote a rule, it was fine. The other way that you can get around that though, is technically his idea of running a DNS server should work. If he has one inside and the DHCP server's handing out and saying, Hey, here, I'm the one who tells you what IP address is what. When he's outside of his environment, it's just handing that back to the public IP of his network. Um, Unless it's getting cached inside of his local machine for going back and forth, that should work.
0: Yep, I guess the other thing you could do there is if you didn't wanna run like a giant DNS for yourself, you could simply have, um, I'm not sure if you can do it on your router, but most routers have a domain override Section, and you could actually say, you know, um, for church.local, go talk to this server. That way, that little DNS server that you set up isn't going to be the single point of failure for your church. Like, you, if you set up your own DNS, um, which is fine, and point everybody at it, what's going to happen is if it ever goes down, you're either going to introduce a significant amount of of latency as they try and fail to contact that DNS server and then go to the tertiary server, or it's just going to stop altogether. Mm. So your better option is on the router, do a domain override and say, you know, whatever nextcloud.church.local or whatever URL you're using, go to, go talk to this uh, DNS server. That way the DNS server is only ever used for one or two specific purposes.
1: Sure. Sure, and a lot of those features are built into OpenSense and PFSense. And so, uh, you know, when I say running a DNS server, I guess I don't even think about it as putting it on a server server. It's built into so many of those appliances. Our third email comes in from uh, Zach. Zach writes in and says, this is two parts. One part for Noah, one part for Steve. Noah, great show, love the ideas, love the topics. I started using Surveillance Station after you recommended it several times. Previously used Blue Iris, which was just fine, but I wanted to consolidate. Everything was working great. Just curious if there is any reason to use ONVIF over RTSP. PTZ only works over ONVIF, I find, but also I can't get any of the cameras, generic Chinese, to show the second stream available either at higher or lower quality. It'd be nice to be able to add the URL for each additional stream, but haven't been able to find anything on this. So uh, on an unrelated note, i use home assistant for about three years and switched to smart things hub to try to make things easier on the family now steve pointed to the ha mobile app which i think is great i wanted to try it again curious at what's the best option z-wave zigbee integration uh previously i had a usb dongle but the location is not great at my house where my knock is i read about some gateway devices maybe i could place more central to the house and connect just curious on your thoughts so i'll answer the surveillance part of the question first um yes uh, there is a reason to use ONVIF. If, you, if you're if you just looking for video streams, then RTSP will get you there. ONVIF is a protocol specifically developed for security cameras, which is why things like tilt Zoom, those kinds of things uh, work in ONVIF mode. Now, depending on the kind of camera you have, you may be able to get both ONVIF and RTSP streams. So, for example, we add all of the access cameras. We set them up as, as ONVIF, all of the primary functions, but it's very routine that somebody will say, hey, we need to be able to have this camera on an older NVR, or they want to pull it for an entirely separate purpose, and that's common at churches, right? So they'll do that to, so that they'll use it as, as another camera angle, or can anyway. Um, and so it may just be a function of, of getting different cameras, and you might be able to get that functionality to work. So Steve, on the Home Assistant side, thoughts for Zach?
0: Yep, so um, the HA mobile app is great, so, uh, I agree with that. I wouldn't have moved to a smart things hub myself. Um, but that's just because I'm, I'm the tinfoil hat person. So to address the specific question about Zig Zigbee or z wave and the integration. So what I do to solve this issue of, um, the USB dongle, which is what I use, I actually have a, um, it's called an hsusb one and it has a Zigbee and a Z-Wave controller in the same uh, in the same stick and I found it to be really great. What you want to do is both Zigbee and Z- Z-Wave have the ability to have what are called routers. A router is anything that can relay the signal for your network. These devices tend to be only available for things that are hard, hardwired. So drawing from the mains because they always have to be on. So you don't want your battery powered devices to be a router anyways. What this means is, so, uh, Zed, I like z wave in this regard because what it'll do is it maps out all of the links and all of the ways to get back to the controller. And when you actually go and visualize the map, you can, you can click on a node and you can see it has already mapped out like five or six different ways to get back to the controller in case one path breaks zigbee has a similar idea except that it doesn't map multiple ways it maps one way to go back so what would happen is if you get a light switch or a plug or even an adapter so they have the they have like the little sockets where it's just one plug that you stick on the outside of your socket and it becomes like it's a zigbee or a wave controlled device those will act as routers because they're connected to mains so what would happen is For Z-Wave, you don't have to do anything. You pair it and it will just go and figure out who its neighbors are. It maps all of the kind of um, the speed at which it can get back to the controller from the various paths. And it does that kind of automatically and it does it once a week in the background. With uh, Zigbee, what you have to do is once you have established a router, so I get one of these light switches, let's just say I have a light switch somewhere. Then when you're going to pair a, a battery powered device, instead of pairing directly to home assistant, you go through home assistant, you click on the light switch and there'll be a button that says pair with this device. And what that will do is map to that router. Then that router will relay the request back into the controller and home assistant. In that way, you can kind of get around, um, limitations in your house. So I have put a Zigbee, uh, outlet, in each one of the major rooms on each floor in order to kind of make that mesh network and like i said for z-wave you don't even have to think about it you just have to kind of plunk them around random places and they'll sort it out themselves so hopefully that kind of helps with the the planning so if you're going to do zigbee you have to do a lot more thinking about it if you do z-wave it will map out multiple paths and and will help you in case of failures
1: very good um kelly writes in and says, just wondering if either of you have heard or tried the Ubuntu Web Remix. Apparently it works similar to OS. I just came across it for the first time and it sounded interesting on the surface. Maybe it's something you guys could discuss. Thoughts?
0: So I absolutely have heard of it. I haven't had a need to use it because uh, I only have one Chromebook type device and uh, it's running Arch because That's just what was compatible with it when I stole it from my wife back in the day. So I haven't actually used it. What do you think?
1: I this kind of stuff excites me for a couple of reasons. I think that there's a lot of places out there that want a laptop just for doing a couple of odd tasks. And often a Chromebook is the thing that gets slid in that place because it's the thing that you can go buy from the store and has a warranty and those kinds of things. Right. I think that we see all the time places have laptops that are maybe four or five years old and the ability to go to them and say, hey, you could just take this and repurpose this laptop and it probably will offer you more power than a brand new Chromebook would, would offer you and you'll be able to do roughly the same thing. So I think it's a really cool tool to have in the toolbox, um, particularly as we continue to go down this direction of whatever you buy from the manufacturer, that's the software that runs on it. I think this is kind of the tool that points the other way. Eric writes in and says greetings no and Steve thanks for sharing your wealth of knowledge and the experience like you do with every show you guys continue to teach new tricks to the 60 year old dog in and recent Linux convert my wife and I are 100% desktop Linux users for about two years and you've helped us on this journey getting to my question are you familiar with the SeaMonkey browser and have experience using it or do you have any Speed clients that use it? it seems to be based off the Firefox code with some added features any insight you could provide would be greatly appreciated any links to cmonkeyproject.org. Steve, you ever looked at Cmonkey?
0: Absolutely. There's been a time where I've tried every browser that I could possibly apt or Pacman install. OK, um, so yes, I've used Cmonkey. I, I don't use it on a daily basis. Um, there was some distro that I was reviewing some time back and they had it installed by default. I I mean, it's a browser. I'm I am not like we've discussed before. I'm not really suited for reviewing a lot of in-depth things because if it goes to ProtonMail and it opens up the show docs, like that's kind of what I require from a browser.
1: Yeah. I, I hear you. I, I keep looking. Um, I've, I'm just stuck on Firefox. I don't know. I just, there's, there's something about I'm I'm one of those people that I hate change Steve because Steve is bad or <laughs> I hate change Steve because change is bad that's what I meant to say I like Steve I hate change uh-huh. yeah, yeah but I but so I I keep looking because one of the things that I think is going to be hugely problematic here is we're slowly skating towards the doom of death with web browsers and it's going to end in a gigantic Chrome Chrome you know world uh, and it probably is already there and I'm probably just living in um, in disbelief. But I look at projects like SeaMonkey and I think that's really fantastic. I'm glad that there's something else based off of Firefox that that engine is valuable. And then at the same time, it occurs to me that even the amount of Firefox users, plus the amount of SeaMonkey users, um, we're skating towards a Chrome Web, guys, like it or not.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, I also am a diehard Firefox user, and that kind of propagates out through my house because my wife will use it because she sees me using it. for my Chrome browser, because everybody has to have one, I tend to use Vivaldi, actually, yes, which, is, yes. which is not the open source
1: one, but man, do I like that browser. Yeah, I had, <laughs> this is an embarrassing reason why I switched to Vivaldi, but I switched to Vivaldi, and uh, and and I have Chromium, I have Vivaldi installed, I have Firefox, um, but I, I mostly I just hang out in Firefox, and I've just been happy there for a long time. And I also, as we, I know there's a lot of crud on the internet about this, and this isn't going to go over real popular, but I still trust Mozilla. I still think that, they're doing, they've got the right goal. I think sometimes that we miss the mark, but I think they're aiming towards the right things. I'm keep rooting for them.
0: what are you going to do though like i mean yeah i know right everybody's like well i don't you know we shouldn't trust mozilla i'm like i i guess but then find me somebody
1: find me some something better it's the same argument i give people about the nra they say well it's they don't act like okay there it's no organization is perfect but then go find me the better organization the thing that does what we're asking that organization to do better and then i'll switch to that thing but that thing is not chrome that thing is not google
0: Yeah. yeah What about Edge? Are you a big Edge fan?
1: You know, I thought about it for a good hot second. And then, I, you know, and there are upsides, right? At least Edge is a product from Microsoft that comes installed by default on Windows that works. So that's a step up from the rest of Windows most of the time. Um, and if everybody is going to base their technology off of what comes installed on Windows by default, I guess a thing that runs on Linux isn't a ba- isn't a horrific compromise. So I there's that. That's about as positive as I can be on that. Other than that, I don't I'm, know. I'm gonna be that old I, fuddy-duddy. 15 years from now, I'm still using Firefox.
0: <laughs> I'd probably be there with you, but uh, I I have uh, Edge installed. I actively use it, but not in the way people think. Uh, 3CX has like a web client that mm-hmm. essentially what happens is my computer boots on and and then only launches the extension, which runs inside it, which is best for Edge. Um, and so I just do that because it just basically pops up a little dialer that hi- hides there. So if you check my PIDs, I definitely have Edge running most of the time, but it's just like a little dialer for my VoIP software.
1: And their telemetrics, or yeah. did you find a way to? So I, can't you you would run that in Chrome? Couldn't you?
0: Uh, I could, but I, you know what? I'm going to sit on the Microsoft side of things before I sit on the Google side of things.
1: That's fair. That's fair. When it comes to privacy. <laughs> They may, they may have. I can't believe I'm saying that. They may have. A, it's, the lesser of two evils. We gotta be yeah. done with this topic. Hey, I'll tell you a good topic. It's audiobookshelf.org. It's the self-hosted audiobook server. This is so cool. This actually came to us from Sleuth in the in the chat room. So easy to set up in Docker, and you upload your own audiobooks to their web UI. Then they have an Android app that you install, and you can self-host uh, an audio s- server. I tell you what, I love audiobooks. In fact, I think I I tend to think of audiobooks like really, really long podcasts. Hey, if I could really dig into a topic, what would it be? And then that's to me what audiobooks are. And I was never a person that liked to sit down and read a book. I love getting into the car and going on, I put a lot of windshield time in. And so if I'm on the road six, seven hours, get a good audiobook going, that's fantastic. The idea that you can self-host this stuff, the idea that you could own all of this content is fantastic. I have to ask though, where does one purchase like royalty free audiobooks where I just get the files?
0: That's a good question. I I go and download the files from Audible. So Yeah.
1: Yeah, but but that's not something that like someday they're going to get their head wrapped around that, right? Right now it's too difficult to prevent and so they there there's ways around that. But someday they're going to get their someday there's going to be some sort of mechanism in place that says hey, you can, you know, stream it from us, but you can't download download I doubt it
0: because the, the, uh, the Europeans have a lot stronger, um, I privacy is not the right consumer perceptions out there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you've, if you've bought it, I believe they have to have some way for you to actually, uh, still have a copy of it. No kidding. And I don't, I don't think that, you know, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that, that they can't do that and still serve the foreign audiences. So maybe they might do it, but I think that the portion of the population that is uh, doing like I do is Mm -hmm. so small. And by the way, I love my audible subscription, right? So I probably would continue doing it even still because I really like the service. I bought a gift. So this is just a side rant, but like I, I get my hackles up whenever. Whenever I talk about this stuff, because people automatically assume you're doing some sort of pirating. Like when I talk about Blu-rays, I'm like, mm-hmm. you want to come over and look at my shelves and shelves of Blu-rays? Like when I'm talking I about using it. MakeMKV, I'm not talking about like downloading something off the Internet. Like I legitimately buy my things.
1: You know, uh, Atypical in the chat room says archive.org. That's that's kind of a that's kind of a bad on us. Yeah, you're right. Archive.org. That is the place that the Internet has chosen to go upload things to. Uh, when you're looking for content. But, you know, honestly, Steve, if you think about it, there's a limit to what they're going to be able to do because if at some point they have to let it spit out of the speaker. And at that point, it can be captured. It's just a matter of how much work it's going to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. So
1: anyway, Audiobookshelf.org, check it out. I think you'll uh, I, th- I think you'll enjoy this product. Our gadget of the week this week. It's the Blackmagic Design Web Presenter HD. So the Web Presenter, the, the, the way that I would explain this device is it is like a TV transmitter for streaming RTMP. So if you've had OBS out there and you've used it and maybe you have you you really like it for doing the composition and switching and stuff like that. But every once in a while, you get a stutter, or something goes out, or or something crashes out. You say, "Hey, I am looking for a hardware device I can plant it up, and it just is going to work 100% of the time." Or maybe you work at a church, or maybe you're at in a business environment where you say, "Hey, we need this conference room, or we need this uh, this place to we need people to be able to go in there and and just push a button, and all of a sudden it just it happens." How do you do that? Well, this is a device that will allow you to do that. It will. It comes with a sdi in and so you're able to feed it an sdi feed then it'll stream that back out to uh to an rtsp endpoint now it gets even better it has a usb device so you can plug it into your linux box let's say for example, you want to do some of that compositing, or you want to use it with something like Zoom or Skype or whatever else. This thing will you can you plug it, a USB cable into it, you plug it into your laptop. and now you have the ability of taking that same high quality SDI feed that you could just send out to an RTSP feed and bring it into your computer exposed as a webcam source. So really, what they're doing is they're picking up on the trick that Madgewell and others have been using for for years to 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 do this with uh, with HDMI sources, and now they're doing it with SDI sources. So, a very very cool uh, little device and and just a few hundred bucks it's easy to get in, into if uh, if you find yourself in an environment where you need to do some some streaming osnews.com is now reporting 80% of steam's top 100 games are now work in linux quote proton has made enormous strides towards game compatibility through advances in related technologies like DXVK, which enabled Direct 9, 10, and 11 games to run through the Vulkan API. In fact, the project is so far along that Amazon has thrown its hat in the ring, working towards streaming Proton-enabled games through Luna. The progress of this effort is updated all the time on ProtonDB, and today they crossed a major milestone as a user reports on the site reveals that 80% of the top 100 games on Steam now run on Linux, and by extension, the Steam Deck. So obviously this is in relation to the release of the Steam Deck and Steam's uh, skating towards this goal of getting their games to run on there. Now, I have to tell you, my I don't follow gaming super closely. It's not something that is, is deeply interesting to me, but uh, the effects that it has on the Linux desktop are by no means lost to me, and because of that, it, it becomes more and more interesting to me. And from what I understand, these 20% of the games that don't run on Proton are not the top top titles. Now, Steve, I know you spend a lot of time, I shouldn't say a lot of time, but you spend time gaming and this is something that affects your world. Um, Are you excited to see that 80% of Steam's games are now going to work on Linux?
0: I mean, I've already been well aware that my library is largely enabled. So I I don't know, I have 350 or 400 games on Steam because I've been doing it like a decade or however long. I've had steam for a long time, just like a bunch of your listeners, but I thought was really interesting about this. So I have a little story. So my dad is over for the holidays. He's down from Canada and I had upgraded my computer. So I had enough spare parts to build like an actual decent gaming computer. It's got, you know, 30 gigs of 32 gigs of Ram and a small SSD and a nine, a GTX 970 in it. So I put it out there and I'm like, okay, dad, it's running Linux, but like, here's the steam, just log in. You want to know what the very first thing he did? No word of a lie. He sorts his games uh, inside of the Steam interface, like naturally, like, and he has a section that says does not work. And the very first thing he did was go install all the games that didn't work on his Windows install and tried (laughs) them. And every single one (laughs) of them worked.
1: (laughs) That's fantastic. That's what I thought. Well, here's the the thing. You think about what this means. You, you... uh, Valve wants to make money by selling games to people. And so game developers come to them and they say, we want to be the market to sell this to a person. Now, granted, proprietary market, I get that, whatever. But that's what Steam seeks to do. Now, Microsoft gets in and says, well, we have our own gaming platform, we have Xbox. And eventually Steam can look down the road, Valve can look down the road and say, at some point Microsoft's gonna say, why do we need you? We have our own game market and we can negotiate with these developers. And really what these developers are after is to get space on our platform is to sell on top of Windows and <laughs> valve is they they have that competing interest and so valve looks and says what do we what does Microsoft have that we don't oh yeah an operating system so then the race is on right the race is on for valve to try to get there on Linux faster than Microsoft can get their 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 marketing around their game infrastructure and 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 all of that and so it's just a cool time to exist on Linux. And that's going to, that's going to bleed over uh, throughout the rest of the episode. I just thought it
0: was funny. Like the, he doesn't go for his favorite game because he's got, you know, games that's his favorite. He goes and he spent like a couple of hours on each game. Like, is it going to crash? And he's playing these games late into the night. And like, he comes away. He's like, no, they all worked like, Oh, that's good. Like, cause I kept telling him, you know, I've been gaming on, on Linux for years now. And he's like, yeah, but you know, gaming on Linux isn't that good or whatever, like the, the traditional fight, I'm like, I don't mm. know, here's a Linux computer, you tell me.
1: Yeah, but that what that tells you is, Li- Linux is going to get there faster than Microsoft is, and the model that Linux use, uses is is easier tweaked around whatever its users want than the Microsoft model is. And that's good news for Linux, and that's good news for Valve, and that's good news for people who want to play games, particularly if you want to play those games on Linux. Such a cool time to to, to watch this stuff unfold. Hey, it doesn't stop with just uh, Steam. Gaming is going to get even better yet with an uh, open-source VR headset. So this is a lot to take in, but an open-source VR headset, and it It's built around the concept of open source so you can customize it. And uh, the company actually bills itself as the blockchain VR metaverse. And so it takes just (laughs) doesn't seem like it takes much time at all before Mark Zuckerberg and the proprietary will come up and say, hey, here's here's our brand. And open source comes up and says, "Okay, watch how fast we already have the infrastructure in place to make this happen. And 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 so now the the VR metaverse is a thing. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Obviously, they they don't they don't even have they have a release date uh, for 2022, and so there's not a whole lot known about it yet, and um, obviously not shipping yet. But it's 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 exciting and it's cool to see that as the as the pieces become available, open source can assemble them faster than the proprietary world can. Kernel 5.17 has some Wi-Fi improvements. Intel's modern uh, Wi-Fi Wi-Fi driver. IWL Wi-Fi is set to see a number of improvements with Linux 5.17. Um, they're going to be kicking that off in January. And The new killer AX211 Wi-Fi PC IDs have been added, fixes around the six gigahertz Wi-Fi scanning and support for optimized connectivity experience. Uh, so OCE is allowing f- uh, for improved Wi-Fi connection management with the access point and being able to provide more detailed guidance from the access point to the Wi-Fi chipset so that they can better steer and 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 help that client decide where to connect and how to communicate information they're also including a new firmware debugging improvement uh and uh a time aware SAR which is uh which is uh, a support from the bios around uh, the specific absorption rate for changing the uh, radio transmitter so lots of cool stuff coming to kernel 5.17 now, the White House officials have enlisted and asked major uh, open source companies um, to work with them to improve the security around open source software. And this investigation is obviously follows around the disclosure of a open source Apache software that cybersecurity officers have described as one of the most serious in in, in recent memory. In a letter on Thursday, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan invited. Major players of the software industry to discuss initiatives to improve the open source software security. The official said dozens of open source software projects have become critical. Now, a lot of this is following in the wake of uh, of, of Log4J. And a big part of that is the way that the IT industry and the community has kind of responded um, to this happening. Uh, so uh, I hope I pronounce this guy's name right. Uh, Filippio... Velasorta. Uh, he runs a blog called Professional Maintainers, and he had this to say, "Open source quote, open source runs the internet and by extension, the economy. This is an undisputed fact and reality in 2021. And yet the role of open source maintainer has failed to mature from a hobby into a proper profession. And Steve, I have to tell you, when I read that, I had to sit with that for a moment because he points out that there are a number of projects with vulnerabilities that have been discovered. And the the question that has started to be asked is, who takes the blame when this stuff goes wrong? When we take this code and we write it, we take it and put it into our infrastructure and something happens, Who who is to blame? And I have spent a, a lot of time on this program saying, hey, people should be using open source. And now Log4J, Log4j has, and this is a direct quote, developed into nothing less than a wide-scale catastrophe. And linked are some pretty nasty posts to people that are understandably upset with the situation. Where I think they take it a little bit too far is when they start directing their frustration to the people behind the software project. And so to me, I, and I'd be interested to, 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 to talk about this with you, Steve, a little bit. Is it the developer's fault when a code for a library that we used for free, that's maintained by a few people in their spare time, and they're not getting paid time to do that, has a vulnerability? Is that their fault then, because they they gave up some of their free time? And if that isn't the case, then isn't the open source model entirely broken?
0: I think that's a tough. Uh, it's a tough question. I. I feel like my, my opinion on this is not going to be very popular. And part of it is because I don't maintain anything big. Like I, the only public maintenance that I do is maintain, you know, the, the home assistant skill for the Mycroft project. So a niche inside of a niche. Um, but I think that when you are stepping into that role of authority, And there is, there is a level of, uh, of authority that comes with it. When you become a maintainer, you're also agreeing to live by, I guess, a, a sort of social contract where you are somewhat responsible. I don't think legally responsible, but at the same time, and they're also not writing the code, right? So can you catch everything for, for something like this? I'm not sure that you can hold them responsible because can they, can they catch all of the bugs? Like would they, would they be able to look at that and go, hey, you know, that seems like if I just did this weird little contortion, it'll do a bad thing. When you're looking at these things, you run it on your machine, you look you look for obvious problems, you try to make sure that, you know, the code meets, meets a certain quality and, you know, is well documented and that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, if if something gets past you, it is your fault, but it's not you weren't the one that wrote it. So there's, if, if you're not getting backed up by a substantial team, like if you're one or two people, something's going to get by you. And yeah. and all we can do is empathize with those people.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I think about what it must be like to work a full day at whatever your full-time gig is, and then come home and your choices are, you can help your wife out with the extra chores and the list that's probably grown long. You can spend time with your kids. You can spend some of your own time relaxing. And instead, you take your laptop, you march down to your desk and you sit down and you code for a couple of hours because you know what, gosh darn it, this is the library that a bunch of people use in Java. Look at all the corporations that use, just look at the CISA list of the organizations that were affected by Log4J. Well, somebody's got to do it. And so here's the guy that has the talent and the willingness to do that. And the first person that gets blamed when something bad happened isn't the companies that are on that massive list that didn't donate a dime to help with this kind of thing. It isn't the dozens of companies that are on that list that have developers in house that they could tap on the shoulder and say, Hey, could you look over there and, and just run through since we I mean, our entire stack is dependent on this. Could we maybe go through that? None of that. We go for the guy who does it in his part time as a service to everybody else. And that's the guy that we start ragging on. And I, it just, Man, I get so. Um, how does that make any sense? And quote, the amount of capital built on top of their work and dedication is staggering. The expectation that a couple people in their free time can dedicate the resources, quality assurance, security audits available to large corporations is just absurd. End quote. I grew up with I grew up with free and open source technology, and it was in large part why I was able to play with a lot of stuff I was able to play with and got me to where I am today in my professional role. I cannot describe to you, when you uh, we go to your mom and you say, hey, I need $700. Well, why? Well, I need a copy of Windows Server. Actually, if possible, I'd like $1,400 because I want two copies. Why? Well, because I want to make them talk to each other. No. I mean, that's a short conversation. Hey, I want two copies of Server. Okay, go sign up for a Red Hat account and download the thing and we'll give you up to eight of them and you can use it for whatever you want. That's a, that's, those are two totally different realities that two, total, two, two different people are living in. One has a massive future to people that, that, uh, that don't have other options to get that software, and, and one doesn't. And at the same time, the, I think the FOSS model is more capable of serving its users to the fullest potential. What we lack is participation from the other side of the boat. And so we need companies to be willing to give back. And I'm not just talking about money here. If you, if you use a piece of software or you use a product in production and you find a problem and then you work around that problem, however it is you do it, share that information or let the people that work for you share that information. If you've paid somebody to fix a problem or design something for you or build something for you, don't be afraid to say, hey, if that can help somebody else out, let's do that because too many companies are focused on, well, fine, I'll use the open source, but it has to be mine and it has to stay here and and, and nothing ever goes the other direction. If you're bitten by a problem, then help and support the people that want to help you by supporting them, not tearing them down on the internet and with posts and complaining to all... You made a choice when you pointed your pen in the direction of the absence of a contract and just downloaded a piece of software and started running it on on your server. And so I... I if that bothered me a lot more than I thought it would when I, I start digging through and finding out that the people on the other end um, are they're not some, you know, massively paid developers. A lot of these people are just guys that are willing to help and gals that are trying to help out. And so maybe you don't own a development firm. Cause that's the other thing, too. Right. Well, I don't own a development firm, so I don't have any spare developers that I can put on a project like that and I don't have you know any spare computers that I could donate or any spare server time that I could donate I don't have any of that I'm running a tight ship as it is and yes we use open source technology um, but we just don't have a lot of extra I, I guess my encouragement then is to try to influence the people that you can influence to write checks and support the products that we all rely on and so if you listen to the show, it's because you, in some way, care about technology and the direction of technology. And so, if if you're the owner of a development firm, if you're the IT guy, if, if you're just the dude in the family that gets all the tech questions, um, this is something we've got to start drawing some attention to. How do we change the model so that when so that we can get enough people working on? problems that we can fix them because this problem Steve tell me if this is an overstatement I don't think this problem would exist in a proprietary solution because precisely not at all like not that it couldn't happen but it's less likely because there's somebody worried about the vulnerability of everything because it's tied to a lawsuit and in the case of open source I wonder if some of that pressure isn't we we tend to dismiss it because there's nobody directly to go after and yet at the same time The people that are doing the work are like, now we are scraping the bottom of the barrel going, who's, who is responsible for this? That guy, we're going to scream at that guy. And that guy has nothing to do with why your IT infrastructure is in the state that your IT infrastructure is in. That's our fault on the other side.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a little bit to that where um, a lot of times what I have seen is corporations like to pay the CYA tax so that they have someone to point at in the event that something goes south. I think that there is, um, I think that there is a responsibility here because, um, and I'm not talking about the maintainers. I'm talking about the corporations, the people that are using it, there is some level of of responsibility because if you are adopting any kind of technology in your company, you vet it first and i see that time and time and time again with our clients right especially some of the bigger ones that that may have the money to and the resources to throw out these things so when i see you know a fortune 500 company coming at this being like you know we've adopted log4j and it bit us and and you know kind of griping about it i know what kind of internal processes these places go through before they adopt technology and it's like if it's not uh proprietary or it's not crucial to to someone, and I don't even mean business critical, but if, if it's just not in someone's mindset, it's like the processes that the thoroughness that they go through to vet these things just goes out the window. And then I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but what I'm trying to say is that when they are trying to adopt a new technology there's a giant list like a giant checklist one of my clients had 94 pages of questions that we had to answer for one of our products right and you know it's just they want to know all of the nook and crannies that are going to bite them and when they adopt something where there isn't a vendor behind it they don't do the same due diligence and then when it bites them there's a, an anger or a, um, an entitlement that surfaces that I think, well, okay, you went through all of this trouble when there was somebody to hold accountable, but just because there's nobody to hold accountable, you all of a sudden bypass all of, all of your checks and balances that you would put in before you do software. Like this seems like you should have put more rigor around this to begin with, and because of that, you bear some responsibility in the fact that you've deployed this and not secured it properly.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, so if you don't plan on being a software maintainer, if you don't plan on hiring a software developer and maintaining software, then you should probably do business with a company that does before you use a piece of software, right? If you're just taking something off the internet and set standing it up, that's not, that's not a path that's going to lead to great success unless it's, it's, you know, unless you have a working relationship with that company on some sort of arrangement to understand uh, the, the the model that goes there. But I want to touch on something else you said. You were talking about uh, a, a model that that works here. So I think there is room for a company to say, hey, I am interested in using uh, an open source piece of technology but frankly we don't know anything about it we just don't understand it here are our company requirements here's what we would expect from a proprietary solution and then allow a a a third party to come in there and say well tell you what we could do yes you can meet the yes this piece of software meets all of your requirements because and here's why and that third party then can become an instrumentation to help uh, provide a paycheck to the people that actually have to do the maintaining of those projects so I, I think there's I, again I, th- I don't think that it's the open source model that's broken per se I just think that there's a little bit of fine-tuning that has to happen to where we can get some money flowing from money and resources I hesitate to just say money because there's there, there there's so many times where we're just having a spare person to go look at something and saying hey could you poke these guys and see if we could fix this for, uh, you know, or or alert them to bugs that they might want to fix? That happened. I see that at our level, and we're just tiny little podunk shop in North Dakota. And we run into that where we come, piece of uh, software will bite us, and we'll reach out to the developer and say, hey, either uh, this is a problem and could you fix it, or here's how we would fix that, and then they just take the fix, and then it's fixed, and it's fixed for everyone. So if, if, if we can afford to do that, and, and again, tiny little podunk, company in, in, in Grand Forks, I have to believe that there are larger firms and larger places and businesses that could either get involved in that process or hire a company to get involved in that process so that they can use the tools that they want to to, to use.
0: Yeah, I think that there's I also don't think that the the system is necessarily broken. If someone is abusing the system, and I think that's I think it's fair to call it an abuse of the system where um you know, you get these. The open source model wasn't necessarily meant for these giant conglomerates to uh, come and essentially take without returning the favor. It was right. it was initially conceived of, of of colleagues working together, peers working together to achieve something. And, and whether or not you think that that's um, you know kind of pie in the sky, having these giant corporations come in and and um, you know essentially abuse the system doesn't mean that the system's broken. Yes, it means that that, you know, someone chose to bro- break the rules. That's like saying, you know, having laws doesn't work because we have some bad apples out there that go and do things that they shouldn't be doing. You know, it just means that someone chose to not follow, uh, let's say, the social
1: expectations of participating in open source. True story. Uh guy I know was working for an organization organization comes in, says, What tool are you using? And he goes, I use this, I I use this open source tool and I built this thing. And they look at it and they said, Well, we need it to do these three or five things. And yep, it does those three or five things. Then they got very upset that he spent any time doing this at all. Why didn't he just buy the proprietary tool and and use the thing? They fired my friend, who was costing them around fifty thousand dollars a year, so that they could hire his replacement, which they then purchased a $300,000 a year subscription to do the exact same thing that my friend was doing for them for $50,000 with open source software. That is the, ki- that those kinds of decision making where you, and again, I, I absolutely believe in that case. What it's about is who ultimately is standing there holding the buck. But I think if you take a step back and look at a 30,000 foot view and you look at things like Log4J in light of things like the solar wind's attacks it there it doesn't matter both sides are going to get bit at some point and so when it comes to open source and providing that source code available, at least you have the opportunity to take responsibility for it. And rather that's responsibility of you hire somebody in-house to maintain it, you work with the company to maintain it, or you simply don't use it because you don't understand it, or or don't understand your own requirements and how this tool may fit. Any one of those uh, seem like an acceptable way to go. But just imagine, Steve, the world we'd live in, if every large corporation in the world took their IT budget and said instead of just cutting our IT budget and we're not going to buy the proprietary solution we go over to the open source what if they just redirected those funds and said we're going if we support this in our stack we're going to make sure that the, you know we we budgeted you know whatever it is 20% for IT we're going to funnel that money towards these projects so that we can make sure that the tools that we need to do our business are around for the next few decades and that they're free from vulnerabilities and and that there's A well-paid staff that will support them and help us out with it i think i mean it would i think it would be we'd live in a different world
0: yeah i think we would um i i'm not as positive as you are i don't think i don't think that um humans will ever get to that point i think we can make strides towards it but i think there's always going to be um, a significant number of people that are going to not participate in the expected way if if that is an option and i think that's partly why proprietary sauce uh, software exists and kind of thrives because it allows them to participate by being a consumer only
1: i'm glad you said that uh because i would say my response to that would be that most of the people listening to this episode likely have some sort of influence in technology and i think Understanding that there is tremendous value to be had in open source, but with uh, that tremendous value to be had comes with a significant responsibility. I think understanding that core principle and then kind of using software that way, and if that means that when you go to purchase your next phone or when you go to purchase your next tablet or next toy, you buy that from places like Pine64 instead of going into uh, uh, you know Best Buy and buying whatever the latest Chinese toy is, You do that on a small level or you work as an IT guy and you say, hey, let's go ahead and do this and let's go ahead and budget some money to give back to these projects and let's run our business on or our IT department on this, that or the other. And we're looking for those open source solutions all the way up to when you get those people that have that right attitude and have that, I guess for lack of a better way to say this, an attitude of stewarding technology and being proper stewards of it hopefully those people will eventually get into the kinds of positions where large companies can make changes. And uh, I don't necessarily have a whole lot of hope for humans to make different decisions, but I trust humans to chase after profit, Steve. And I think that I I truly believe that with a little bit of finesse and a little bit of molding uh, up and support st- infrastructure up around open source, it has the potential to deliver far greater value in both monetary regards and just serving the people that want to use the tool better than proprietary can do
0: yeah i i think so there's there's just so many um, examples throughout history of where um, if we work together on something that benefits everybody um, like common infrastructure for example laying down roads or whatever all of the nations that ended up connecting themselves via roads or railways or whatever turns out taking care of your own stuff was just good for everybody. And I think that open source uh, software, especially if you are not a software developer, like if, you're, if your business is not around developing software, then contributing to Apache or, you know, Nextcloud or whatever it is that you use is not a threat to your business. And that's only going to help you, um, you know, achieve whatever goals you have, regardless of what your customer, whatever your uh, competition is doing
1: absolutely well said steve we'll close it there hey the ask noah show is recorded every tuesday at 6 p.m central if you'd like you can join us for the live recording you can download the show at podcast.asknoahshow.com that's where you find all of the articles and references we'll see you next tuesday 6 p.m central asknoahshow.com